0: Uh, We're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians, uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians, so I invite you to turn there in your Bible. I'll give you just a moment to find that, 2 Thessalonians. Uh, We're going to start on a a quick study of 2 Thessalonians, five sermons through the book. I posted on this a few times and and talked to people about encouraging them to read the book, to uh, meditate upon what it says. Uh, It's a short little book. Uh, I even encourage people to memorize it. You say, well, I don't know if I can do that. Well, this is a short book of the Bible. If you're going to memorize an entire book of the Bible, this would be a good one to start with. And if you've never done that before, by forcing yourself to memorize it and sit down and thinking about how, how it's all arranged, I know God can greatly use that in our lives to encourage us and to begin, begin to change the way we think about life. And so uh, there's a, there are grand themes in 2 Thessalonians. That would be well worth committing to memory. As a matter of fact, the theme of our sermon today is uh, to give us a very lofty view of God. And I think that we need the Spirit of God to be able to hear this chapter, to be able to consider its value and worth to our life, and to allow it to affect us. And so I want to go to God in prayer this morning and ask Him to help us as we gather. Let's pray. Father, as I've been reading through chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians this week, I was struck by how lofty You are and how sinful and weak I am. Lord, I pray that as I proclaim Your Word, which describes Your character, that I would not change it. That I would not hide anything. But that I would only seek to explain and clarify what Your Word says is true about who You are. And Father, I know there are many people here today Who are stuck in the mundane of life. And who need to grow a deeper view of you. So Father, as you reveal yourself to us through the preaching of your word today, I pray that we would gladly receive it. May we not be the judges of what is right and appropriate. For the god of the universe to do but may we submit gladly to the one who provided salvation for us through the name of jesus i pray that as we leave we would gain an even loftier view of who you are in jesus name amen so my goal today would be to cover all of chapter 1 12 verses And one of the ways we're going to do that is uh, the introduction uh, contains some verses that we've basically seen before. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 is basically the same uh, introduction that you find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There are only two very minor differences that involve pronouns. And so we've already talked about these words and Paul's point in these words uh, in verses 1 and 2. What we do find, however, is that the same trio who authored 1 Thessalonians authors 2 Thessalonians, and they start with the same greeting. So it might lead us to the question, why a second epistle? Same greetings, same authors, same church. What's going on? Well, as a form of introduction, I would like to give you just a few reasons, I think, why 2 Thessalonians is here and why it's written. I want to show you in your Bible before we look at verses 3 through 12. First, it appears that only a few months have gone by since Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, since these three men together wrote 1 Thessalonians. There are different ways you could demonstrate to prove that. I would just suggest that it appears that they're in the same location. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were only t- together in certain cities for a certain amount of time. And so it seems that both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were written when the three were together in the city of Corinth planting the church. And we know from other other material, other, other places in Scripture like Acts 18 of 1st Corinthians that these events took place in 50 and 51 a.d so probably just a few months after paul wrote first thessalonians he writes second thessalonians so why well i think that there are several internal clues that would help answer that and would basically demonstrate that the situation was growing worse in the city of thessalonica for the believers there i want to point you to a few of these so look at Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse eleven. Second Thessalonians three eleven. One of the things that's grown worse is that the situation with idleness in the assembly had deteriorated. So look at three eleven. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. And the point I'll, I'll make to you here is, Paul hears this. So. Paul gets a report, I think, after 1 Thessalonians, that now some in the church are still struggling with idleness. And he will give a fuller, expanded treatment of that than he did in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, really just three verses. Here he's going to give most of chapter 3 to deal with these (laughs) idle believers and what they should be doing. The situation is growing worse with idleness. It also appears that someone, a false teacher perhaps had sent the Thessalonians a counterfeit letter about the end times. You say, well, where do you see that? Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to read verse 2. 2-2. Two, two. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, why does Paul write 2 Thessalonians just a few months after 1 Thessalonians? It's because someone was adding even more confusion to the Thessalonian assembly about the timing of the day of the Lord. Someone either threw a prophetic word in the church, they stood up and said, This is from God, and then they said, The day of the Lord has already come. Or, someone perhaps wrote a a letter to them claiming to be from the apostle paul it was a counterfeit and so paul hears about this as well and he feels the need to write second thessalonians to clarify some things uh, about the end times and i think it's also true as i'm thinking why second thessalonians that the persecution that this church had been facing since they were converted was increasing and growing as well look in your bible at 2 thessalonians 1 verse 4 1 4 therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of god for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring so we can at least say the in, the, the afflictions and persecutions are Continuing, and so Paul is boasting about them to other churches. So I think these are some of the reasons why Paul writes Second Thessalonians. He knows that they're still facing severe persecution. So he's gonna write this letter. He writes this letter then to, to clear up some things about the end times in their view of the end times and to help them know how to treat idle believers and to comfort, comfort them in their great affliction. That's, that's why 2 Thessalonians. So Paul writes this book to deal with these issues. And I think it's involving especially the end times and how to treat lazy brothers. Paul turns his attention first in chapter 1 then to the end times. There are two sources of confusion and discouragement that were impacting this church. And this is how I'll look at it. We'll look at it this week. And then the next time I preach in two weeks. The first source of encouragement are the persecutors, verses 3 through 12. There are some people who were persecuting the church, and so Paul's going to encourage them. The other thing that was discouraging them or confusing them was that deceptive false letter that they received. And so that's what the next, one's, next sermon's going to be about in, in a little while. And so in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 here, Paul will deal primarily with the terrible fate Of those who are afflicting the church. As we read through this text, I think you'll find it is indeed a terrible, terrible fate that those who are afflicting the church will face. Now, this is not a topic that Paul normally spends a lot of time on. Paul doesn't normally in his epistle uh, spend so give so much information about what evil men and women will face but this is a biblical truth and one that we should look at. And so Paul will explain here how God will deal with those who persecute the Thessalonian believers. And so the way I've outlined this and the way I like to work through this, verses 3 through 12, is that his argument will unfold in three ways. Paul starts by rejoicing, verses 3 and 4. He will then comfort, verses 5 through 10. And finally he will pray. He rejoices, he comforts, and he prays. Three point sermon. Okay, so uh, the first point is verses three and four. Paul rejoicing. Look at verse three. It says we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love every one of you, uh, and the and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. ...for your steadfastness in faith in all your persecutions and the, in the afflictions that you are enduring. The afflictions that you are enduring. So here Paul rejoices. The wonderful testimony of the Thessalonian community motivated Paul to thank God for them. Now, the way he says it in verse 3 is a little unusual for Paul. He says, we ought to do this. Okay, he doesn't say we, thank, we give thanksgiving. We ought to give thanksgiving. And I just want you to know, though, that Paul does not see this as an obligation that he hates or that he, you know, he's not saying, like, I know I should do this, I ought to do this, but I'm not. No, this is something Paul rejoices in doing. And later on, he says, that it is fitting or right for Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy and I to offer up thanksgiving. See, Paul feels a sense of obligation to give to God thanks for the growth of the Thessalonians and for how they're enduring suffering. Now, he specifically in verse 3 says he gives thanks, or ought to give thanks, for two things. He should give thanks for their growing faith and their increasing love. He says that their faith was growing abundantly. Now, this is a a good expression, a good reminder to us. All all throughout 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about the faith of these believers. He rejoices that they have it, that God saved them in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians... A little bit later on, he talks about the fact that it was growing in, in, in chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter three of First Thessalonians, And now as we come here, he says it's growing abundantly, And he rejoices, or he gives God thanks uh, for that concept as well. One of the things I want to emphasize with you here is that faith is not a static thing. We, we think of it that way in our culture, in our world today. We think of faith. As something that either someone has or someone does not have. For instance, we'll, we'll talk about someone, uh, they walked away from the faith. I heard a report of uh, a well-known evangelical person who claims to have walked away from the faith. We, we think of faith as an all-or-nothing thing. You have it or you don't. Yet, when I go through the scriptures I see, faith is a dynamic thing. It is to be growing. It's not like zero or 100. But that faith is something that should, is living and growing and should be deepening in the life of followers of Jesus Christ. There are actually degrees of faith. Think of some of the things that Jesus says. He says to the disciples, O oh, you of little faith. So they have faith or not? Probably, but just a little bit. It's anemic faith. It needs to grow. He says uh, later on in the Gospels, uh, regarding uh, a person that he's helped, he says, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So we think of faith as like a a static thing. You have it or you, you don't, but it is to be growing and progressing. And so Paul thanks God... That their faith is not only productive, but that it's progressing abundantly. The same is true of love. It's a dynamic thing, and it should be increasing. And so he says about the Thessalonians, I'm thankful that your love is also increasing. Your love is also increasing. And actually, he describes this in a very interesting way. Look at the end of verse 3. And the love, every one of you for one another is increasing. That just feels awkward in English, doesn't it? Well, if you think it's awkward here, you should read the Greek. Okay, it's, it's a challenging thing to translate. It could be something like this. Uh, they each love all, and all love each. They each one love the all, and the all love each. So, wow, you know what, what a great church this must have been. Every believer striving to love the group and the group striving to love every believer Just stop in a moment of application here and, and say could paul say this about our assembly you know we we tend to, to tolerate and love those in our church who are most like us maybe the ones in our own abs you know the one we chose because it kind of lines up with our age range but we love the ones who are, are the same age range or the same background or the same Uh, group but paul's vision for a church goes beyond that each loving all and all loving each Uh, perhaps our times together in neighbors gather on wednesday nights over the course of the last few weeks have revealed to you that there are some believers in this assembly who see things a little bit differently than you Remember when we started something like this in Minnesota, we thought it would be this this great thing. You know, we're going to get everyone together in small groups. But what we realized is as soon into it, it created a lot of tension in the church. Because now people are interacting with other believers and they're saying, you know what, he doesn't agree with me on this. She doesn't agree with me. How could anyone have that view of such and such? It created this tension. Well, Neighbors Gather is a great opportunity for you to To pray that God would deepen your love for people who are unlike you. Unlike you in background and age and in many different ways. Employment, but like you supernaturally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this text, Paul's vision for the church at Thessalonica, what he says about them, how he gives thanks to God that That they are loving each person. And that each one is committed to the all. This is just a a dynamic description. That leads Paul to give spontaneous boasting for them in verse 4 about these believers. Specifically Paul's boasting to all the churches that he's having experience with. uh, Of the, the steadfastness and of the faith of the Thessalonian believers under persecution and trial. This is something that Paul boasts about in a church, and it's something I think that Colonial Baptist Church should strive for. Paul does not boast here, or is not proud of their building. They didn't have one. Okay, He's not proud of their preacher or pastor. A lot of the things churches today will boast of. Their building, their property, their preacher, their worship, their programs for such and such care or evangelism. Paul's not thankful for that. He's not boasting of that, but he's boasting in their steadfastness, their perseverance in trial. And he's boasting about it to anyone who will listen. And so Paul first rejoices. That's verses 3 and 4. That leads Paul to then comfort. This is Roman numeral 2, or my second point. Paul comforts and verses 5 through 10. And as we read through here, you might not think that there's a lot of comfort going on, but I think it's important uh, to look at this text and to, uh, to, to try to understand it in its context. In this passage, verses 5 through 10, the heart of chapter 1, Paul will talk about God punishing those who persecute the Thessalonians and rewarding them for their faithfulness in the midst of trial. I think Paul's point here in his explanations will be to defend God's character in judging sinners. He starts in verse 5 with a simple but important assertion or statement. Look at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you are suffering. Paul starts with this phrase, this is evidence of God's righteous judgment. And that should lead us to ask, well, what is the evidence? Many people will point back to verses 3 and 4. Keep it simple. I think this is the evidence, talks about verses 6 through 10. Paul's just about get ready to give them evidence that God's judgment is righteous. Okay, and that's what the rest of this passage will be about when Paul talks about God giving relief or reward to faithful people and punishment to unfaithful people. Now, before we look at verses 6 through 10, though, I want to prepare you for them. When I say that, many of you look down your Bible and start reading them. (laughs) Good. First, as we come to verses 6 through 10, I know that this is a passage that many people find difficult to accept this is a passage that offends many modern people when we consider the character of god in this passage paul describes a way that god will severely punish the lost in our modern sensibilities we we don't like viewing god this way this passage is really harsh God comes with affliction, flaming fire, mighty destroying angels, vengeance, punishment, eternal destruction, and banishment away from God and His glory. Go through this passage, it gives this view of God. I really like how one evangelical preacher defended God in this text he said this he said when God governs the acts of sinful men and women he is not thereby a sinner when God governs the sinful acts of men and women he is not thereby a sinner this passage some people will will look at what God does here and they'll think how could a loving God do this But I agree with the preacher, it is never wrong for God to judge sin or sinners. He is the judge, the immortal God, not us. And so as we look at this text, we have to let God be God and do what he seems best. Secondly, I want us to consider, right before we get to verses 6 through 10, why these verses are here. And I want to remind you why I think this passage is here. These things about God's severe judgment on wicked men and women are primarily here to comfort Christians who have been beaten, afflicted, or perhaps even martyred for their faith in Thessalonica. See, this is an important passage Because it is not a wrong impulse for people who've been abused for performing righteousness or doing righteousness in the world for them to ask God, like the psalmist, how long? How long will the unrighteous prosper? How long until God makes these things right? And ultimately, this passage is important for us because it not only shows that beaten and martyred believers will be vindicated, it also reveals that God will be made completely clear of any criticism of his justice. In the end, he will make it all right. So foundationally, before we look at these verses, you need to understand this is about your view of God and nothing can be more important. Nothing. And God will act this way to vindicate the glory of his own name as well. And So I want to look at verses 6 through 10 with you where we see the judgment of God. And the way I divide this up is I think this passage narrates between the work of God and the work of Jesus. If you're going through chapter 1 and you were to mark... uh, when the name God is used, the name the Lord or Jesus is used, you would pick up on a trend I just want to show you here in your Bible. This is an important key, I think, to properly understanding the whole chapter. Okay, I'll show you first in, in chapter 1, verse 1. Look with me there. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I found in chapter 1 is that Paul is concerned to talk about both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll often put them right side by side. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he pairs them at the beginning of the chapter. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at uh, verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God, that's the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's like this fancy word to describe this. There's an inclusio right there's a mention of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1 and 2 then there's a mention of them in verse 12 and by that Paul is telling us this chapter will be about the activity of both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that's not only found there is found in the heart of this chapter look at verse 6 since indeed God Father here considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, inflaming fire, inflicting, inflicting vengeance on who? Those who do not know God, and number two, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. See, this text is about what God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ will do at the end of time to those who are persecuting the church at Thessalonica. So, matter of fact, in my outline, as we look at verses 6 through 10, and God judging, I see the judgment of God the Father in verse 6 and 7a, and then in the middle of verse 7, he turns and he expands it further by showing the role of Jesus. Verses 7b through 10. Okay, so that's what we're going to work through here very quickly. So you have the role of God the Father in this judgment, verses 6 and 7. And we learn in verse 6 that he will reward and punish. He will repay with affliction those who are afflicting the Thessalonian church. That's what one commentator called the great eschatological reversal. The Thessalonian Christians were being persecuted and in the future, God is going to do the same thing to them. He will afflict them. He will, to use, back moder- to use modern language, he will, it will be payback time. He will justly repay with afflictions those who are afflicting the church, and he will grant relief, or it could be translated rest, to the Thessalonian believers who are going through great trial and affliction. The word relief or rest here is is used often, literally, of uh, releasing someone, giving them relief from a heavy burden. This is a metaphorical description here of these Thessalonian believers who've lost loved ones for their testimony of Jesus Christ, who've been beating themselves, that one day they will get relief. God will give this to them. Now, Paul's description of God's judgment is expanded in verse 7b through 10 By looking at Jesus' role in the future judgment of unbelievers. And so I want to talk with you for a moment about this. Look at 7b. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The first thing we see here is that Paul says that Jesus' part in all of this judgment and this vindication will start when he is revealed from heaven. The word revelation revealed here emphasizes Christ's cosmic intervention and judgment. The word re- revelation is used as the removal of a veil. This speaks then of the unveiling of Jesus. And is properly used here, I think, to describe the time when Christ removes the veil which he's hiding behind. And reveals his powerful presence to those who are persecuting the church of Thessalonica. The veil is going to be removed and they're going to see Jesus and his strength. This word, I think, then speaks very powerfully of Christ and what he will do. And again, some of the language here will probably make us a little bit uncomfortable, but in fact, I was reading this week of one preacher who was quite uncomfortable with this and he says just doesn't fit what we know to be true of the coming of Jesus Christ. i say that, yeah, it's true of his first coming. His first coming, he was filled with grace, humble, lowly, kind, self-sacrificial. But what we read of his second coming is that he will come to punish, to vindicate, and to make things right. But don't just believe my word for that. Turn over with me to Revelation 19. I want to just read some verses. I won't even comment too much to you about what is in them. But Revelation 19, 11 through 21, a passage that I think in fuller detail reveals the the second coming of Jesus Christ and what he will do in his appearance. The second coming, Revelation 19 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth, this is describing Jesus, comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Since he is going to squeeze Out God's wrath upon them. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written... ...King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun... ...and with a loud voice he called to all the birds... ...that fly directly overhead... ...come gather for the great supper of God... ...to eat the flesh of kings and of captains... ...the flesh of mighty men... ...the flesh of horses and their riders the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest... Who are the rest? The rest, I think, of these human beings were slain by sword. The sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's a very vivid description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We don't like it in our modern sensibilities, but this is how the scriptures portray Christ and his second coming. And when he comes, the scriptures say that he will bring his holy ones, the text in 2 Thessalonians, his translated angels, mighty angels. And it could be them. It could also be saints. I think both are true. Angels and saints come with him, performing his bidding at the second coming. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's just continue to read here. So... In the middle of verse 7, we saw when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, gonna be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The second way he describes Jesus is he will come in flaming fire. In flaming fire. I think this gives further evidence of Christ's determination to prosecute the prosecutors. Some think flaming fire has to deal with the revelation, the glory of Christ. I think it could be that. But I think it's a further description of the fiery judgment that he's going to bring. It's like Christ comes and he's all ablaze in firing judgment. Next, Paul explains that he will be inflicting vengeance. Look in your Bible, verse 8. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance... Those are very strong words. I I won't even get into them fully, but he will be inflicting vengeance on, I think, one group of people. They're described in two ways here. He'll be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want to suggest to you is that that's one group. And that those two descriptions kind of hold together in Scripture and in life. Uh, in, In other words, you do not have a relationship with God unless you receive and obey the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And so one of the things I want to point out to us today is I want you to see that this judgment text, this fiery judgment text about inflicting vengeance, is expanded here in this verse to describe not only the people who persecuted the Thessalonians, it's now expanded to describe the fate of any person who does not have a relationship with God, who does not know God, and who does not obey the good news of his Son, Jesus Christ. It struck me as I was preparing for this sermon that in a hundred years, every one of us in this room will face one of two things. We will either receive reward and relief, or affliction and hell. And so I ask you, have you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? The good news of Jesus Christ. Because this text describes the fate of any person who fails to believe in Jesus Christ and to repent of their sins. So I trust that God will give you grace to see this. And so he says that Christ is going to come and inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, he gives this final description of what they're going to face. But we'll pick up in verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified to His saints, to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. The last way Paul describes this judgment from God and from Jesus is that Jesus will then sentence them to eternal destruction. And that word eternal is important. Again, many modern people in the last 100 years or so, even people who say that they adhere to the Bible, they describe the destruction of God upon the lost at the end as like this annihilation. Where God through hell just burns them up and they're consumed and they no longer exist. But that does not adhere to this word eternal. This word eternal in this text has to be used of unending punishment in hellfire. The other texts you could go to too that would prove this is everlasting, this is there's no end to the torment that those who reject the gospel, those who do not know God, will face because of this punishment. Now there's all sorts of ways you could describe hell in the New Testament. It's a place of pain, isolation, sorrow torment, but in this text what is emphasized is it's also a place where you will be completely isolated not only from other human beings I think that is true in utter darkness but isolated completely from the goodness and the presence of God for all eternity. Severe words here. Severe judgment. So Paul powerfully defends I think God's character and his purpose in this letter as a way of bringing encouragement. I think this is a way to encourage the Thessalonian believers who had been persecuted. Paul rejoices. He comforts. And then in verses 11 and 12, I'll just read them. Finally he prays. I'll just offer a few comments here. It says, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. This is the second time he talks about being made worthy. Back in verse 5, is made worthy of the kingdom. Here it's made worthy of the calling they received at their conversion. I I think that it's important to see that that is not just a description of, or it is not a description of the fact that they'd be made deserving of it. We can never be made deserving of it, but that we would be made fit. God makes us fit for it. He prepares us for the kingdom and, and his calling. Keep reading. And may fulfill every resolve for good and work of faith by His power. Paul prays that every resolve that Thessalonian believers have to do what is right, that it would come to fruition because of the power of God, that God would do this. So that, and here's the goal of Paul's prayer, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. So that by the way these Thessalonian believers live, the name of Jesus would be magnified and that one day they too would be magnified in Jesus Christ. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we close today, we've made it through, for the most part, most of chapter 1. We have seen that our faithfulness in trial magnifies Jesus. And it will be vindicated Perhaps you're here today and you've been assaulted by physical disease and you wonder how long. A great discouragement by Satan, or unfair practices at work, or disappointment in how others are living or treating you. My encouragement to you from this text is be faithful. Be faithful. It magnifies Jesus. And one day, your faithfulness will be vindicated by God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. Thank you for its lofty view of God. It is one that is hard for us to hear. But then, we're also, at least in our country, not persecuted like the Thessalonians were. As I read through this text, I think of brothers and sisters all across the world who are enduring great affliction, suffering. Some are being attacked by proponents of other religions that would would simply wish to extinguish their existence from this planet. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in hostile places today that they would be comforted by the fact that within your character, you will do what you say. That you will punish the unrighteous and you will, you will reward those who are faithful in trial. It may be that some of my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room as well are suffering under discouragement or persecution at work or at home. I pray that they too would be encouraged. That in the end, all these things, the, the all-seeing eyes of God, you will make everything right. We trust you and we rejoice in you. And we are so thankful that we stand in Jesus Christ. May he be glorified by the way we live on this planet, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.